Good morning, church family. It's good to see each of you here today. Um, you know, we started uh, PA Hot Meals last November, the uh, beginning of November. So it's not really even a year yet. And I want to say that it was somewhere around nine to ten months ago, I started having a conversation with our dear uh, sister who passed away just a few months ago, Connie McAllister. And that conversation was way more than I wanted to have. It went something like this, Pastor Jay, we need to buy a house. I said, what? Yeah, we need to buy a house. We need to, we need to have a transitional place for people who are, who are transitioning from, uh, you know, their uh, detox and then treatment, and they need a place to live until they can get on their feet. And I said, Connie no way. Too much money. Board would never even want to go that direction. And so we had this conversation back and forth. And so I said, okay, well, let's go ahead and go to the agencies in Auburn and let's see if what they think. And so Connie and I developed a little letter and we sent it out to all the agencies, didn't tell the board about this. And we, we went out and the agencies came back to us, about six of them said, yes, it's a desperate need in our community. And there was like three months I had Connie on the board to, t to share, and every time we were going to talk about it, for those who are on the board, they'll remember, every time we were going to talk about it, it got sidestepped because there was too much other things we were talking about. And so she was never able to present it, which I was kind of glad because I was like, oh man, I don't know if I want to really present this yet. It's just, we're just trying to build the shower trailer, we're trying to get the food trailer going. Anyway... <clears throat> We have a member in our church, Nancy White, who came to um, us about five months ago, maybe six months ago, and basically said, hey, I have a four, fourplex home that I would like to give the church if when I die. And she went ahead and she got a lawyer and she, you know, a deed of death trust and um, I remember calling Connie that day and saying, wow, Connie, look at this is happening, and you had, you had wanted this to happen, and here's somebody who's willing to donate their house, and, and oh, Connie and I, we just rejoiced over the phone that day. And then, um, you know, that all started happening, and then, of course, we found out that Sabbath that, that Connie had had passed away. It was, just, it was a dark day for us, sad day, because she was our community service leader and even more just inspiration for the ministries that are going on here in our community. And so um, on that day, I went up that day, that Sabbath, to visit Nancy White. Nancy and Connie were friends. And Nancy said to me that day, she goes, you know, I wish we could do something in this house, something before I die. I would love to see that happen. And I said, well, I suppose it could be possible. And so we routed up the very next day on a Sunday. We got together a team of people here in the church. Some of you are here today. And we spent quite a bit of time cleaning out an apartment to utilize for a place for someone to live after treatment. And so we got that going and, uh, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, the legalities of it and all. Oh, boy, there's a lot of stuff to make this thing work. 
And then we went to the agencies and we said, hey, who, who, who would you recommend? And one name popped up above all the others. His name, Trey Richardson. Now, Trey has been clean for almost 10 months now. <laughs> 10 months. And come on up here, Trey. And Trey is going to be moving in to this apartment tomorrow. Yeah. Amen. So the reason I share this is here over seven months ago, eight, well, probably it was like eight, nine to ten months ago, Connie McAllister had this dream that I listened to but I just said, oh, this can't be, Connie. You're, there's just too much. We're throwing too much at the board. But the board was always willing. But, but eventually then this thing, it's just amazing how this thing has worked out. And Trey, I met him at our 12-step regeneration. He had been clean at that point about four months, I think, at that point. And he has just been working the program so well and going to all of his meetings he needs to be at. And he has been an inspiration to all who know him. And we're just so proud of Trey. So I, I just want to, as a church, with a church family, just have a word of prayer for this young man that God would just continue to sustain him and use him as he lives for Jesus. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear God, I thank you for this young man who has come to you and claimed the promises of your word and the strength of your Holy Spirit to live a life that is pleasing, to live a life that is worthy and, and, and beautiful and, and a ministry to other people. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for where you have taken us, that we, you never give up on us. And I pray, dear Lord, that as Trey goes into this apartment tomorrow, as we move him in, and, and this has been a dream of Connie's so many months ago, of this reality that's taking place tomorrow. And I just pray, dear Lord, that this home would be a sanctuary for Trey, and that he will just continue to grow and develop, and that above all, he would be your man serving you with your purposes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 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 Praise Thank God. You. Love you, brother. Proud of you. Thank you. When Debbie and I were student missionaries in Micronesia, we were on a little teeny island about 15 miles across called Ponape. And Ponape is a circular island, and you can look it up on, on Google Earth. And in those days, and it may still be the case, the road kind of went around the island to a certain point and stopped. And uh, the people living on the other side of the island where most of the community did not live were very native compared to the people who lived by the airport and in the colonia, the city. And a group of us had motorcycles, and we decided one Sunday we were going to ride all the way around the island because there was a trail that you could connect with, and it was about a two-hour trail till you finally hit the dirt road, and then it becomes a pavement again. So we decided we were going to do this. And on the other side of the island, 
once we got to the other side and we'd been going through the trail, there was this beautiful river. And I mean, it was a hot day. We had been riding, we were sweaty, we were dirty, and a river is just the perfect place to ride, play on. So this river was about half the, the width of this sanctuary, and it, it kind of, um, it flowed pretty fast, and there were probably the deepest parts were maybe two or three feet and so we were just out there playing in this river for probably a good hour, just enjoying ourselves. And there were some vines that we kind of jumped off in, into the river with and all the different things. It was just a nice break from the hot weather. So we're on the other side. We've been out there for a couple hours now. It took us a couple hours to get there, and it is time to go back home and finish our trek around the island. And so we get out of the water, and we're going up to the motorcycles, getting ready to go. And I can't find my keys. My little key, little key for that motorcycle. And it had a little white string on it. And I could not find that thing. And I looked around, and, well, where'd the last one? Well, I had it in my pocket. Well, I had been playing out in this river for the last couple hours. And so we set out to try to do the impossible, the needle in the haystack impossible, right? We, I had gone up and down this river uh, probably 200, 300 feet. The river's pretty wide and it's flowing fast. And so there's like, I don't know, what was there, about six or seven of us maybe? And so we set out starting to look for this it's key in this river that's flowing fast. And I'm sitting there praying because it's going to get dark. I'm on the other side of the island, and there's not enough room for me to get on a motorcycle. And I don't know, Debbie, were you riding with me? I think you were riding with me. So there were two of us stranded. Wouldn't be all that bad, but maybe it would be. <laughs> anyway, so we, we set out, and we're looking in this river, you know, and we're all walking and all this stuff. And all of a sudden, one of the... One of the groups looks down and sees a rock with a little string that goes over the rock. Just out there in the middle of nowhere. And looked down and lifted up and that key started moving. And he grabbed that key and got it out of the water. And that was like, wow, what a miracle! Of all the places just out there in the middle of this huge area, this little teeny string was sticking out. And the rock was under the key was underneath the rock, and the key was found. And I don't know if you've ever lost something that you really wanted or you really needed, and how frustrating that is, and how, how just it's a painful. And there's a certain amount of you kind of beat yourself up. You know, why did I do that? I should have left the key. In. Who's out here going to steal a motorcycle anyway? Just leave the key in the motorcycle. But that wasn't the case. Well, dear family, as much as we looked for that key and wanted to find it, there is a God in heaven who is looking for you even more. Who has been searching and turning over every opportunity so that you might receive a relationship with the King of heaven. 
to bring us back into communion with God in a way that develops this relationship. And I've said this quite a few times recently because I just really, it, it saturates me in a beautiful way, and that is this concept that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And when we try to make Christianity a religion, it gets stiff, it gets judgmental, it gets, it gets something that's absolutely abhorrent and even will murder people. But a relationship with the king of heaven, now that's worth talking about. In order to bring us back to the original communion with God, two things had to happen. Independent decisions had to be made. Number one, God would have to personally receive the penalty of the sinner, the lostness, and die. You see, the wages of sin is death. Death has to happen for sin. It has to be, in a sense, the wages. We use the word pay when we talk about wages, right? So, God can't just say, oh, it's okay, we, you, we can forgive that, that's no problem. The wages of sin is death. Your death is required for your sin or the death of the one who is perfect in your stead. And so number one, God would have to personally receive that penalty for the sinner's lostness. And number two, the sinner would have to accept God's death in his place. That's the formula for salvation. God's part has been accomplished, and our part is to receive it and accept it. God's son taking our penalty. And so once he's done that, he has numerous scriptures. One I love is in Revelation chapter 22 that says, Come and let him who hears come, and whoever is thirsty, let him drink of the water of life, that free gift of the water of life. I like the analogy of thirst. And I like the analogy of thirst because the longer you're thirsty, the greater is your desire. They, they break thirst up into mild, moderate, and severe. And most of us probably have only been in the mild portion of thirst. Severe thirst is when your tongue begins to stick to the roof of your mouth. Severe thirst is where it's going to start affecting your heart. Dehydration begins to settle in. And your body begins to shut down. They say that people in that situation are not given large quantities of water after they're having that high, severe level of dehydration. They got to introduce water slowly to a person. Jesus says, all those who are thirsty, come to me and I will give you the water of life. The invitation is to those of us who are lost to come to the Savior. There's a, there's a beautiful scripture. There's two things we're going to look at today. One is in Matthew, one's in Luke. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, beautiful statement here of Jesus. 
seeking and saving. It says in 9 verse 11, the Pharisees saw this and they asked his disciples a question. Why does your teacher, your teacher, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your teacher spend time with people that are of low grade, of questionable character? Why does your teacher do that? The Bible says on hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call those who are lost. And I don't know about you, but I certainly am in that camp. And I'm so thankful that Jesus has called me to be a part of a relationship with him. The Holy Bible in the book of Luke likens lostness to three things. You've heard it, the lost sheep. The shepherd goes out to find the one and celebrates, not the 99 that are saved, but the one that is lost. And then it talks about the coin and the woman sifting through the whole house and looking under the floorboards for the lost coin. And then finally, the lost son. The lost son. It's a snapshot of God's redemptive plan bathed in patience. I've said this text to you before, but I just, I love it. In fact, I think probably there's not a week goes by I don't say this text in some format to somebody. The Lord's patience means our salvation. Think about that for a second. If it wasn't for God's patience with you, you wouldn't even be saved. But the Lord's patience means our salvation. So, the Bible looks at these three stories, and the one I want to look at is found in Luke chapter 15, starting with verse 11. So, you can turn with me in the book of Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And the lost son, better known as the prodigal son, down through time, people have been able to identify with this lost son for various reasons. For a person who feels like the prodigal son coming back home, there's a sense of connection to that prodigal son. But for the parent who sees their son or, ch or child going out into the world, you have more identity with the, the, the father who is longing for the child to come back home. And I don't know where you see yourself in it, but, but I want to look at this story in a very intimate way here this morning. I want to ask you if you would... There's a piece of paper and a pencil. Pull this out because we're going to look at very quickly 14 little points and they're going to go spiral down and then spiral back up. And we're going to write those down. If you want to write those down, that would be fine. It's worthy to know what these are because it's very consistent with those who leave the fellowship of Jesus. So the Bible starts out in verse 11 and says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. So there are three individuals mentioned here, a father and two sons, and those two sons are very different boys. One is going to leave, the other is going to remain. 
The Bible says the younger one said to his father in verse 12, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Number one, you can write this down, self-will. Self-will. For those of you who have one-year-olds, two-year-olds, and three-year-olds, you begin to see self-will played out. I want it. It's mine. That's my toy, right? There was a study done, and you might have seen this, a study done of these little children, and they were all about six years old, and they put these uh, little donuts in front of them. And then they, the person said, don't eat a donut, and if you don't eat it, I'll, when I return, I'll give you two donuts. And so there was quite a few kids, and so the person didn't specify how long it was going to be, and these kids looked around at each other, and finally this other, one kid starts eating a donut, and then another kid says, well, if he's eating it, I'm going to eat it. And over half, but not quite, about two-thirds ate a donut. And then they came back in, and they gave two donuts to the kids who did de uh, delayed gratification, right? Delayed gratification. Self-will. Our wills, our self-will. I want what I want, and I want it now. And as parents directing our children, self-will is our most challenging task. In fact, priest Eli in the Old Testament, his children had no limitations. His sons had no gui parental guidance. There were no spiritual boundaries, and his sons were really doing wicked things. And literally, the Bible tells us that because of the sons of priest Eli, it cursed the whole entire nation of Israel. The nation suffered because those boys did not learn how to contain their self-will. So as parents, it's important, and as humans, it's important to have boundaries. It's important for us to have boundaries. It's important for us to have limitations. And God gives us guidelines. Just, you know, when you say, oh, those are laws of God. No, listen, most of what God tells us are like guardrails along a lake crescent. Just in case you swerve, there's something to hold you back. So when God gives us uh, rules and laws, it's, it's not for our, um, our detriment. It's for our safety. Someone once said, the will given solely over to self becomes solely selfish. And as adults, we are constantly challenged with our own self-will and must surrender daily to the will and the possession of the Holy Spirit of God. You've heard it said before, demon, you've heard that, demon possession. It's a reality. There are people who are demon-possessed. Well, I want to be Holy Spirit-possessed. Amen? The Holy Spirit. Because what is His fruits? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. When we surrender our wills to God, though it is difficult sometimes, sometimes it's like a, the biggest challenge, but what happens is all of a sudden when we surrender, we allow God's will to be lived out, and guess what? The way we were supposed to live. 
He's the designer, and he has a plan for every one of you in his picture of life and health. You know, I was a very self-willed little boy. I know you probably don't know that, but I was a very persistent little guy. And my mother would told me when I was a teenager, she said, when you were three or four years old, we knew you were either going to be all for Satan or all for God. We knew it. And so we just kept praying, Lord Jesus, please take this little boy. She would tell me that we had a bookcase in our house that was clear up to the roof. And there was, a, there was an area up in the top of the bookcase. And she'd walk in the living room looking for me. And I'd be quiet. And I'd be sitting up there on the top of the bookcase. She'd say, don't do that. And then I guess a little while later, here I was, three years old, climbing back up on top and sitting up there. The reality, though, is, is that when you and I have the privilege of surrendering our self-will to God, we are introducing ourselves to the true joy by which we were designed for. So, self-will, okay? Now let's go on to the story. Not long after that, the young son got together with all he had, verse 13. He set off for a distant country. He gathered all his wealth. He got it out of the bank. He set off for a distant country because it's always greener on the other side of the fence. Remember that? And he squandered his wealth in wild living. There are three downward steps shown here. Number one, selfishness. Selfishness after self-will, selfishness is at the center here. It separates us from individuals. I found something years ago I, I, I added here. I like this. It said, how to be miserable. It says this. Number one, think about yourself. Talk about yourself. Use I as often as possible. Mirror yourself continually in the opinion of other people. Listen greedily to what people say about you. How to be miserable. Expect to be appreciated. Be suspicious. Be jealous and envious. How to be miserable. Be sensitive to slights. Never forget or forgive a criticism. Trust nobody but yourself. Insist on consideration and respect. Insist on it. Demand agreement with your own views on everything. Sulk if people are not grateful for you. Never forget a service you have rendered and shirk your duties if you can. And if you really want to be miserable, do as little as possible for others. <laughs> Because this son operated out of glorifying self-will, then nothing but selfishness ruled his life. And then the next one, number three, the Bible would say, then he separates. He goes off. He leaves his family. He separates. How often do we face this step? It's almost like a crossroad. To be honest, separating at times is tempting, right? Because this person over here causes me angst, and this person over here doesn't understand me, and so this person, I'm just going to leave them. I'm just going to separate. Separation is probably one of the greatest tactics the enemy uses on the church, because if he can separate you, he can devour you. You see, there's, 
there's, there's support in numbers, in community, in fellowship. But so many people are saying, well, come on now, the church is filled with hypocrites. Of course it is. That's why I go, and that's why you go. A church member has lied to me. Well, guess what? Maybe you have also lied. The reality is, this is a hospital, and we are all sick people. Come on, let's hear an amen. Amen. And so, this is not a place for perfect people. This is a place where we come and say, hey, we need the healer. We need Jesus in our life. To separate is tempting because we, we, we have these issues with one another, but it's a critical step we take. Take inventory of our thoughts. Take inventory of our actions and look at, okay, maybe this person does this, but how can I help this person, pray for this person, and be the kind of light that God wants me to be? I always hate it when someone says, well, I'm looking around for the church that, that best blesses me. You know, what about looking for the church where you can be the best blessing? Amen? That's what God is calling us to do. So number 13, Number verse 13, not long after that, the son got together all he had, set up for a distant country, squandered his wealth in wild living, and now we're going to go to wild living, which is number four, sensuality, sin. Now, I'll be honest with you. Sin, if it wasn't enticing, sin, if it wasn't desirable, no one would do it because we all have carnal hearts, Right? So sin oftentimes looks pleasing at the get-go. It oftentimes looks like, hey, this is something that I would like to be a part of, even though I know it could be wrong. Sometimes sin looks like a grand adventure, harmless. Sin has an intriguing logic to it. I had Pastor Bill told me one time, he said, the interesting thing about sin is that we see how it could hurt other people, but we always think to ourselves, it won't hurt me. I can do it. That's the lie. I can get away with it, and it won't hurt me. I can have this affair, and it won't, it won't hurt me. I can do this thing, and it won't hurt me. That's the logic of how sin works. In fact, the Bible calls sin the mystery of iniquity. I've often thought that as Eve stood there looking at that tree of knowledge of good and evil, there must have been a sensation of pleasure. Wow. Talking to this serpent in the tree and and feeling a euphoric feeling that somehow she was superior even to God to make a decision outside of God's desire. What happens, though, of course, with sin is just the opposite. What sin does is it takes hold of its victim. It, it, it begins to strangle and spiritually suffocate, leading to prisoners and leading to degradation of hearts. Sensuality is this place where though sin feels fun and exciting for a moment, it becomes treacherous. It becomes a prison. It becomes binding. And pretty soon you can't get away from it because it has its hold on you. That's why we have to be very careful what we play with, with entertainment, 
with addictive issues, even sometimes with other human beings. We have to be careful because it can take a bind upon us. The Bible even says bad company. Have you heard this before? Bad company corrupts good character. So if we're going to be in bad company, you better bring a couple good characters along with you, right? So that we make sure that we're always in the majority as we work with those who are suffering by sin's imprisonment. Sin wants to blind us. The reason Jesus, and I've said this so many times, but I just have to say it because maybe this is the first time you've ever heard it. But the reason Jesus hates sin is because it hurts the sinner he loves. It hurts the sinner he loves. So verse 14, after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. Number five, spiritual destruction. This is where sin ceases to be fun. This is where sin begins to bind its victim and offers only a hopeless tomorrow. Where sin begins to be uh, almost like a hatred within the person. There's no more hope. There's no more light. There's no more peace to draw on. And it's at this stage many say to themselves, no doubt the whisperings of Satan, it's all your fault. You caused yourself all the pain. This morning I got a phone call from a dear friend of mine who has a, who has a connection to a gentleman who lived here in Port Angeles who introduced his daughter to fentanyl. And he told me that this gentleman who introduced his daughter to fentanyl last year committed suicide. He has a brother. His brother lives in the area and he said his brother is really hurt hurting over the loss of his brother who committed suicide. Pastor Jay, he needs someone to see him. Would you be willing to go see him? I said, absolutely. So he sent me his name this morning, his address. I'm going to go see this gentleman. The fact of the matter is, sin has only a certain level of joy before you fall off the cliff. And then all of a sudden, there's that hopelessness, that slow deterioration where a person no longer feels valuable. For those of us who are out there on PA Hot Mills, we see it. I remember talking with Richard many months ago when we were doing it, and he came back shaking his head. He goes, oh, this hurts. This hurts to see these people like this. It hurts. That's the grip of sin upon them. I've seen it in their eyes. They, they talk about wanting something different, but it's like almost like something in Mexico or something in Japan. It's so far away they can't even imagine being broken from this, this chain that is binding them. The Bible says in verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. Number six is self-abasement. What does it matter anyway? No one cares for me. No one is concerned about my welfare. No one loves me. Our world today is filled with individuals hopeless and self-abasement. And I think that's the beautiful power of PA Hot Mills. Because what we're doing, creating value, casting casting value, creating friends, what we're doing is we're trying to get out there and tell people that they are valuable even in self-abasement. 
even when they can't do anything to get themselves out of it. And drugs become part of the picture, jail time, arrests. And I might say this to your family, that self-abasement doesn't have to be homelessness. There are many people living in homes and apartments in this community where self-abasement is happening all the time. There are many people who commit suicides that have a nice house. (laughs) There are many people who you meet in the grocery store who don't know how to even take care of their heart because they are at the end of the road. God's truth is so awesome and redemptive. No matter the prison of self-abasement some might be experiencing, God's power and God's mercy can break that cycle and give freedom. This is the last one right here. He longed to fill his stomach with pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Number seven, starvation. I guess the good news about hitting the rock bottom is you just can't get any further. It's at this point where he's either going to do something positive for himself or, like many in our society, they check out and say, I'm done with life. I give up. I think the the saddest suicide I've ever been attended before, I think I've shared this with you, but it it resonates with me right now, and that is um, a sophomore in high school, young man, killed himself left an a iPod video of himself explaining to his parents, why would I want to live? Life is filled with regrets, sorrow, disappointment, and death anyway. What's the reason? And I remember sitting with this little family, and they had a, he had a little brother, sitting with this little family, and the mom and dad were saying, they both worked at Boeing plant, and they both said, we were just too busy to let the kids go to Sunday school. We were just too busy to have church in their life. We were raised with it, but we were just too busy. Well, the problem is that young sophomore high school student didn't have the perspective of anything other than the world. And it was filled with sorrow, disappointment, and regret. And so out of his own desires, he ended his life It's frightening to consider how many millions of people on earth are starving spiritually. And so, family, we we have a call. We have a call wherever you go. Whether it's in the grocery store, whether it's at work, wherever we go, we have a call to have people consider tasting and knowing that the Lord is good that there is something more to offer in this world than starvation. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you will have you who have no money, come and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without cost. It is here where we find our story changing and something begins to happen. Verse 17, read it with me. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. So we went downhill with all these S's. Now we're going to start with the R, realization. Realization. And maybe that's you where you can help someone to see, hey, there is something better. There is something more. 
to realize your situation is the first step towards repair. The reason we go to doctors is because we're trying to get better, right? We're trying to get better. And um, when we feel sick, we, you know, we try to nurse ourselves back to health, but oh, it's not getting better. So, so then we're, the next thing, well, we'll go see the doctor, go see somebody, get help. About a month ago, um, about a month ago, there was a young lady who is um, my daughter, my youngest daughter's best friend, and uh, Debbie and I have known this young lady since she was a second grader, and um, she's 29 years old, and she had been sick. She'd been going to the doctor, starting to have lung problems, starting to have heart problems. It's all happening very quickly. And then they found out, 29 years old, she has cancer all the way through her. Within 24 hours of finding that out, she dies. She dies. In fact, directly after the service today, that's where Debbie and I are going. We're going to go to her funeral in Auburn. I suspect there'll be probably three, 400 people there at that funeral. She was, her family and her life were very instrumental in our community down there. Thankfully, she was a very devoted Christian young lady. In fact, you looked at her, her, um, her Facebook, it was loaded with Scripture and talking about the things of God. I just, it did me a lot of, gave me a lot of hope seeing that. But the reality is that there are sick people around us that don't need a doctor. They need Jesus. They need a Savior. And that's our calling. And we don't have to have degrees to do that. Amen? We don't have to be doctorates and master's degrees and all this. Thing. All we need to do is talk about Jesus and what he has done for me. That's why Jesus said to the demoniacs, go home to your friends and family and tell them what the Lord has done for you. And when we do that, it's not a, it's not a dictation of theological preponderance. It's just a simple story of what Jesus has done for you. We take inventory. The Bible then says, the, the son said, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Number nine, resolution. I've got a plan. I'm going back home. Here is where the eyes begin to be redirected. Here's where the worst sin began to realize that even though I've sinned greatly, I still have a forward-looking idea. The Bible says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let us keep our eyes looking to Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross. The son says to himself, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He thought to himself, make me like one of your hired men. So he comes to his father. 
And uh, he, he says to himself, I'm not going to tell my father I want to be his son anymore. I'm not going to have an inheritance anymore. All I want to do is work for him like a servant. But he also has, number 10, a repentant heart. And you know, in our relationship with Jesus, dear family, repentance is such an important part of the relationship with Christ. We repent and we, re we, um, re repent and we surrender and we allow God to do, manifest His Spirit in our life, giving us a sense of purpose. I love the text. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new. Here, say it again. He is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. To repent is to turn away from the mud of the pigs and the filth of the pigs. To repent is to go in a different direction, which is heaven-bound. To repent is to experience the sweet forgiveness of Jesus. And so verse 20, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Number 11, he returns to the father. And so it is our story today. The lost son, having repented personally to himself and to God, goes to his father. The Bible tells us, therefore, let us confess our sins one to another and pray for each other. You know, one of the thing, one of the ministries we do connected to twelve step, um, connected to PA Hot Mills is our twelve step regeneration. And one of the steps in twelve steps is to go and to apologize, to amend, make amendment for those we have hurt. It's a very important process in the healing of a human heart. Sometimes we've hurt our spouse neglected our children, misrepresented our co-workers. Maybe we've offended a neighbor. I don't know what it is. But the reality is, God, if God lays something on your heart that you need to ask for forgiveness, if you need to go and say, hey, listen, I, sp I spoke out of turn. I want to apologize. That's okay. That's good. That's healthy. That's all part of returning. Confession not only allows for healing in the relationship, but it also testifies that God is working in my heart. Amen? God is working. And the final one, as he goes back to the Father, the Father is reconciliation. And it's the picture of the patient God just ready to accept the sinner. And I just love that picture, don't you? Where the Father is watching, waiting, ready to embrace. I don't know about you, but I want to every morning be embraced by God. Every morning I want to recognize that He is there waiting for that relationship. He's there fully embracing. The Son says to the Father in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your Son. But the Father says to the servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. There's almost the picture of the son has no clothes. 
He's in rags. What does Jesus do when we come to him in rags? Number 13, reclothing. We're reclothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't leave us in rags. He wants to put his best robe on us. The robe of Jesus. The robe of righteousness. The robe of perfection. He gives to you. And you stand before God as one who is perfect in the righteousness of Jesus. What a blessing. The Bible says in Galatians, you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seen and heirs according to the promise. Clothed in the holy hope, taking off the filthy rags and putting the sinless clothes of righteousness of Jesus. Revelation twenty two fourteen says, Blessed are those who have washed their robes that they may have right to the tree of life. Finally, the Father says, it's the Father talking in the last little bit of this story. The Son has done all He needs to do. So what does the Father finally say? Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And notice, even though he was dead, he was still his son. We are not saying to people, you can one day be God's. Listen, you're already his son, his daughter, no matter where you are in, the, in your journey. But this son of mine was dead, but now he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they begin to celebrate. Number 14, the last one, rejoicing. The Bible says that there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And I don't know, I, I haven't ever met the 99 righteous people yet. <laughs> I just am so thankful. I am so thankful that there's not a person who walks on planet Earth that the Father is not waiting for. So I want to end with a song, with the words of a song, just to not warn, warn you there. goes like this. Let me tell you about mercy. It led me to this land of grace. Once I was homeless, ashamed to show my face. I deserved no gift of favor after all that I had done. You've all heard my story. I'm the prodigal son. And he wasn't surprised at where I had been. He was waiting for me at the end of my sin. And the heaven I found in the hell I was in, that's where his mercy, that's where his mercy begins. Let me share an invitation. Come join me in this land of rest where we trade our failures and gain the Father's best. 
Let us turn to him together, leaving all our fears behind. The Father knows your story. It's mercy. It's mercy you'll find. And he wasn't surprised at where I had been. He was waiting for me at the end of my sin. And the heaven I found and the hell I was in, that's where his mercy, that's where his mercy begins. I had run so far from him that all my hope was dying. But when I finally turned for home, his mercy came and showed the way. And dear family, he's never surprised at where we have been. He is waiting for us at the end of our sin. And the heaven we find from the hell we've been in, why, that's where his mercy, that's where his mercy begins.